And I'll speak for myself. Not only am I not very good as companies get larger, I don't like it very much. Hey everyone, I'm Mark Randolph and welcome to That Will Never Work. On this podcast, I speak with folks who are at every stage of building their own business, whether they're leaping from side hustle to self-employed or are already generating revenue and ready to level up. My goal is to draw out their biggest challenges and then, using a combination of advice, encouragement, and tough love, nudge them just a little closer to realizing their dreams. While I'm known for co-founding Netflix and serving as its first CEO, my career as an entrepreneur spans four decades. Netflix was actually my fifth startup, and since leaving there, I've had the opportunity to work with scores of early-stage companies and mentor aspiring entrepreneurs from all over the world. Along the way, I've picked up hundreds of tips, tricks, and secrets, which I'm eager to share with my listeners. Helping others move their ideas forward has become my life's passion. So if you've been told that will never work as much as I have, you've come to the right place. Together, we'll prove the naysayers wrong. Today's guest, Robert, is the president and CEO of Celicor Therapeutics a pharmaceutical company that's developing a potentially life-saving medical device. Robert describes it as a sort of EpiPen for heart attacks. He's well underway with a product on the verge of getting a critical FDA approval. But when we sat down to talk, Robert was concerned with how long he should stay in the value chain before partnering up with some larger pharmaceutical company. With typical entrepreneurial optimism, he's confident his company can pull it off by themselves. In many ways, our conversation ended up being less about scalability and more about why we're entrepreneurs in the first place. I hope he got something out of it. I certainly did. And I think you will, too. Rob, welcome to That Will Never Work. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you. And what I think would be the best way to start, actually, would be for you just to kind of give me a quick overview of what it is you're working on, and then maybe what it is you think I might be able to help with. Great. Thank you very much, Mark. So uh, this is probably a little different than you're used to. We actually have a pharmaceutical company, a biotechnology company. And in layman's terms, the best way to describe it we're developing an EpiPen for people that are having a heart attack. So when a person calls the EMS ambulance with a heart attack, the EMS would come and like a needle, like a subcutaneous, like an EpiPen, would give them our drug with this device. It would keep their arteries open, prevent clotting from occurring. It lasts for about 90 minutes. So when they get to the hospital, it wears off and the doctor can do whatever they need to putting in the stents or whatever they need to without complications. So it's a really, really important drug device that can really save lives. There's just one little other tip that I have to tell you that, you know, in the last 50 years, there's been enormous changes in helping people with heart attacks. You get to the hospital, your chances of survivor are enormous. But that time between when you call the ambulance and you get to the hospital, there's no treatment. The only thing you can do is get there fast. And you should go by an ambulance, by the way, not have your family drive you. But that's it. There's no treatment. 
So a quick question, Rob, is this kind of like a, not to get too medical on me here, is it like heparin? Is it a beta blocker? Is this something really, really simple and the delivery mechanism is the new piece of it? Or is this an entirely new drug or a new treatment? It's a novel class of drugs. Heparin is very astute. That breaks the clot down. Our drug keeps your platelets from aggregating. It's like a super aspirin. The real advantage is it can be given subcutaneously. It starts working in 15 minutes and it wears off quickly, but it's a super, super potent aspirin. And your background, are you a doctor or are you just a pharmaceuticalist? Where did this come from? My background is in biomedical engineering. So I did a lot of work in you know, engineering and biology and also took a lot of medical school courses. So it's the kind of the fusion of both. The discovery came from someone at Rockefeller University in New York who had been working in this field his whole life and has developed another drug for the hospital in the same class. But he realized that a fast, easy-to-give version of this could really make an enormous impact. That's what's so exciting about it. So again, I'm certainly a long way away from this industry in this field, but I'm gathering there's huge obstacles between when you have an idea and when you actually have something that you can sell. I mean, I'm used to this world where, what the heck, I have an idea, let's try it. I'm gathering it doesn't go quite so easy in the medical field. It's highly regulated. I like to tell people if, if in your field things were regulated the same way, we'd still have vacuum tubes. You know, we wouldn't have <laughs> semiconductors, we'd have vacuum tubes. So, but you're right. So what's beautiful about us is we've gone through this preclinical phase. We went through the phase one, which shows it's safe and normals. We're now into patients. We're actually loading this on ambulances and treating patients under very controlled clinical trials. And then the last phase, and this is actually comes to my question in a minute, will be to do the final, final embodiment of the trial to get approval from the FDA. But we're far along the second, the second of three phases. And just to give people who are listening to this podcast, who may come from very, very different backgrounds, sure. what is this taken? I mean, how many people are working on this? How much money has been spent to get it to this point? I'm gathering this is not something that you do after work from your workbench in the basement. Correct. No, we have a company called Celicor Therapeutics, but we've taken a very, very unique model. We have a core team that does the management and finance and oversight. We have a group of consultants that have expertise in each area we need. And those consultants who I've known for years, we farm out to companies and we watch them very carefully to put this all together. So we have a very large team, but it switches between times and the different groups. But it's a very virtual company in many ways. Given the changes that you see in your world and our world, you can hire people as long as you get good people and supervise them to do this. Nevertheless, if you take the time from when it was first discovered and all the money that went into the research and the development up to now, before we even got our hands on it and licensed it from the Rockefeller University, it was probably 30 to 50 million. We oh. will spend in this phase about 30 million, 30 to 50 million. My question is, We've gone really far and really fast. We've done this in less than three years, from the molecule to here. And our investors, originally, we have a great group of investors, they're private investors who I've worked with in other companies successfully, signed up for us to get to phase two of the three phases. 
and then partner it with a large pharmaceutical company. And what can a large pharmaceutical company? Well, they've got the marketing expertise, which we don't want to do, and the sales force, and we just can't do that. They also have a big clinical development team that can do the phase three trial. But my question is, just given how well things are going and given the tools available to us, we could take it through phase three. It would probably cost us another $50 million that we hadn't planned, but then we'd bring it all the way to the market. And I think that we could do it faster than a pharmaceutical company. But again, the investors have only signed up for phase two up to now. Their return might be higher. And that's sort of what I'm trying to juggle. Do we really take that next step? How do we think that through? Really interesting. And some ways so familiar, but in some ways so alien. Flashing back to your earlier comment about how if the tech industry was regulated the way that pharma was, we'd be on vacuum tubes. I read this really interesting article a few weeks ago in The New Yorker about the artificial heart and how that's been worked on for so long and progress is so halting. Basically, if I pick up at least this one piece of it correctly, because every time something has to change, a part needs to change. Some slight design tweak needs to go entirely through trials again. So the incentives are, please make sure every single little part is always available, because if not, we're screwed. So just hearing things like that makes me cringe at how brutally difficult this must be. So I feel for you. But it's a great barrier to entry, Mark. Once you've done it, your competition is locked out sort of right that certainly is very true but the part that sounds actually very serious and very similar to me rather is phasing progress and the model that i'm familiar with is certainly the venture model for a tech company because just like a drug or a new therapy is going through these stages each one with its own associated risks and each one with new challenges so does almost any tech company I mean, in your case, to quickly refresh me, phase one is efficacy, phase two is basic safety, and then phase three is scale. Is that the basic way of thinking? So phase one is to show it's safe in normals. Actually, there's phase zero where you do this in animals and cell cultures to show everything's okay. Phase one is safety in healthy volunteers. Phase two is sort of a proof of concept in real patients, which we're well into. We're doing a 1,600-patient trial to demonstrate that. And then phase three is the actual trial to get approval by the regulators. Ah, okay. So those steps make sense. And each one, I assume, has its own risk. So for example, in your phase one trial, you have your investors who you're telling this thing is incredible. Just think of the market for once we develop this drug, which allows you to treat greatly improved survival rates for heart attacks. Amazing market all over the world. And they go, that sounds great. We're willing to invest. But then of course, you get three or four months into your trial a phase one trial, and of course you begin realizing that it kills people, or in fact that it accentuates the heart attack, or something completely unanticipated, and boom, all that money for this promise is dissolved. So I understand that. And then of course you get past phase one, now the investors are going, oh, this is great, it's safe, but does this really work in uh, real people? So a whole new sets of risks. So I'm very familiar with that model because we do that all the time. 
We mentioned earlier before we started that you have a son who works at a company that I was part of starting, which was called Looker Data. It's a software company. And when we first pitched that to the VCs, it was very much an imagine if you will. We think it's possible to design a product that does this. And if it does it, just imagine how big the market will be. And based on that promise and based on some confidence in myself and Lloyd Tab and Ben Porterfield, the two co-founders there, they're willing to take the risk. And that risk, that amount of money that they allocate is entirely focused on getting us to the point we've proved we can actually do technically what we promised. And then you would think everyone goes, ah, oh, fantastic, IPO. Go, oh, no, 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 wait. All we've done is shown it works. We haven't shown that you can sell this thing, that customers will actually pay for it. And if so, how much they'll pay for it. And you go, okay, we've got to prove that. So now you raise your next round, and that's very explicitly going to the investors and saying, we've proved it works, and now we're going to prove that we can sell it. And then you prove you can sell it, and you use your money for that. And now you go, can we IPO yet? And he goes, no, no, not so fast. You proved you can sell it to the early adopters in Silicon Valley. Let me see if you can do this other parts of the world, etc. Each time you prove something, you then have to come back and prove something else. And so certainly this is the same thing, which is why I maybe can comment on it without completely making an ass of myself, which is that each time we step up to the next phase, you have to ask yourselves, do we have the expertise to do this? And the risk reward that you would ask an investor to make, which is we're all going to bet together that we can, in the example that I was giving from Looker, we're going to bet that in fact what worked in San Francisco will in fact work in Dubuque and in Fort Lauderdale. And they're looking at the company going, yeah, but that means Looker now has to figure out how to hire salespeople and build lead flow and learn all these skills. And well, Lloyd's a technologist and Mark, he's a marketing guy. He's never done a SaaS product before. And so there's real executionary risks. And at the same time, Lloyd and Ben and I are going, do we want to do this? Do we want to learn how to do something we really haven't done before? And more importantly, are we willing to bet? Are we willing to risk screwing up everything we've done so far on the off chance we can actually figure out how to do this next stage? And in the case of Looker, yes, we kept on going because at each point we begin gaining confidence. We can do the next step. We can do the next step. We can do the next step. So this brings us back to you. I think so much of this hinges on a short-term decision coupled to a long-term decision. The first one is you making this judgment between there's no question that a large pharmaceutical company can run a phase three trial really effectively. Yes, maybe it's a little slower. Yes, maybe it's slightly less focused because they'll be doing a whole bunch of other phase three trials at the same time. But you'd be handing it off to someone who has in place the resources, the expertise, the people, the network to nail it. Unfortunately, you'd also be stepping out of the value creation chain at least one step earlier. And that's the judgment of the degree to which you think your company has or can build the expertise to do the phase three as well as you did the phase two and the phase one versus what you stand to gain by doing it. And then I'll jump into the second piece of the thought process as I would think about this, which is you can't just think about what happens in phase three, because then you also have to think about what happens after that. 
because then you enter, it's probably not called phase four, it's probably called go to market or something like that. No, it's phase four. Yep. Phase four, which obviously then it's a whole different set of skills, expertise, distribution network, salespeople. You're having to make this decision into the future because if you go, oh, there's no way in hell we want to do phase four. We're absolutely going to take our phase three drug and now sell it or partner or whatever the business relationship is. That's 100%. 100%. We don't have that. Okay. So now we're really talking about just do we do the phase three or not? And so in some ways that I was going to say, if you really thought you might want to do phase four, then of course you have to do phase three <laughs> to maintain the control of it that way. So at this point, it strikes me as being a reasonably straightforward judgment, which is, uh, as uh, Clint Eastwood said to the punk, well, it all depends, uh, are you feeling lucky? Which is, do you really think you can pull this off versus what is the step function change in uh, value creation? And in fact, how strong is that as part of the motivation? I do want to hear what you think about this to make sure we're on the right track, because I would imagine that this is not entirely a decision that you get to make, that you may in fact have to encourage all your investors who've taken you through phase one and phase two, who may in fact be saying, oh my God, get me out of this maze <laughs> we've gotten this far. So you may have to bring them along with you, even if it was true that you, in fact, Rob and team wanted to double down. Is that a reasonable sense of what you're struggling with about this risk versus reward? It's perfect. And that's why once I set the stage of the product, it didn't really matter what it was on some level, because I think you nailed exactly the issue. So a couple things that came to mind, and we have to do this with hard dollars and cents, obviously, but just talking conceptually with you, there'd be an enormous step change in value if we went from phase two and finished phase three. That's number one. Number two is, again, without sounding arrogant, our model is working. We have domain experts and there's companies as long as we work with them closely and we have a domain expert overseeing them, we can do it. I'm convinced we can scale this, the, the trial. The real issue is, again, we'd have to bring in additional investors. There'd be dilution. Again, let's say the math works out that the return is fine, even with the dilution, because you know, the bigger pie theory, right? But then you have other people that you don't know, and there's unknowns with they're involved with and what their goals are. I mean, usually later stage, I have more interest in money and less in the science because, well, for all the reasons you know. So that's really what it's now distilled down to. Yes, we can do it. Yes, we'd have to take more money. Yes, we'd have to bring in new people. And that dynamics is not easy either, as you know. Rob, are you the CEO? Are you the founder? Are you the man? I am. I'm the CEO and president. Yes. Uh -huh. I have to ask this. What do you want out of this? What motivates you? What floats your boat here? Is this your shot at the villa on the south of France and that you go, man, this is my chance to grab it? Or are you going, no, I've got these four other drugs I can't wait to get back to? The step change in value, would that get you what you want? Is that what drives you here? So really, it's a combination. If I didn't make another penny, I'd be very happy with my lifestyle and my life. The additional money, you know, you can figure out all sorts of great things you can do that are fun and wonderful and help your sons and you know, all the things that you do and best help other people. That's part of the motivation. I'd be silly not to tell you that. But also this drug, and I've worked with this collaborator for many years. We've done a couple other companies and he's great to work with. And this problem you know, there's so many stupid medical problems, like another Viagra, another Botox, another this. This is like a meaningful change in people's lives. So 
we really want to get it to the market as quickly as we can. And, you know, that has financial returns. It would be great. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it's something in between. The, maybe you gave me those bookends on purpose. You obviously are sophisticated enough that you are doing these judgments about pros and cons of going it on your own versus not. And I'll speak for myself. Not only am I not very good as companies get larger, I don't like it very much. And one of the most wonderful things that I've been given in my life is this ability to have choices. I can largely do what I want, which is an unbelievable gift. Looker is a great example. The part that I loved was seeing Lloyd and Ben's enthusiasm and going, I can help them make this company real. And it was so exciting and so incredibly cool those first three, four, or five years. But I knew that I wasn't in this for the long haul, and not just because I wasn't good at it, but because I didn't interest me after a while. Um, and the same thing happened with Netflix. What was amazing was those first four or five years and then all of a sudden you get success. You know, Netflix finishes its phase two. And my God, there's amazing people like Reed Hastings and Barry McCarthy and all, all the other senior executives at Netflix. I'm going, it is yours. I'm not good at this. You see what those executives are paid and you're like, oh, holy crap. But I'm going, no, that's just a momentary holy crap. Fundamentally, I'm delighted that I was there at the beginning. Because listen, just like you said, the difference of whether I had stayed at Netflix another 10 years and rode that stock all the way up, sure, the toys might have been bigger, but it fundamentally wasn't going to change my life, really. That's not the interesting piece. But in other words, I think you have all the information you need to make the right call here. Now I'm going to go way out in a limb. So pardon okay. me. You should go for it. And you should go for it for two reasons. I'll say two. Maybe it ends up being more. But here's why I think you should go for it. First of all, okay, the, the caveat here is I'm going to venture an opinion with great authority and confidence about something that I know almost nothing about. So take okay. that for what it's worth. All um, right. I'd go for it for a couple things. things. One is you're not trapped. I've heard you say, oh my gosh, no, absolutely. Once we're out of phase three, I'm putting it in the hands of somebody else for phase four. That's something that someone else is. I'm not trying to start a huge pharma company here. Other people are much better at that. Wonderful. That's a great clarity to have. Your motivations for taking it through phase three are economic in a healthy way, which is, yeah, listen, I'm not going to be naive. More money is better than less money, but I recognize as happiness is a different scale. You have to go find that somewhere else, but all things being equal, that's the way this game is played and it's a measurement. And if you don't like that, you go live in Cuba, but you're doing it in a healthy way. But what I'm hearing is two things. One is I hear in your voice kind of an interesting challenge of taking it through phase three. I can do the phase three because now I have the confidence I'm not going to hurt somebody and it actually works. Now we're just doing some bells and whistles to get this thing approved. Well, I've got a great network too that I can rely on. It. You, know, you talked about teams in your book. I've got a team around me that are just amazing. Yeah. They'll go into the battle with me and they're fantastic and they're battle tested. So if I didn't have that, forget it. So the thing that I think that made me say you should go for it the most was your comment that said, I think we can get this to market faster this way that from the very beginning when you probably first heard someone talking about this new set of molecules and begin recognizing what it could do for people i think that's been the motivation with the secondary layer of what a fascinating business problem this will be to take this all the way through the fundraising the partnerships the lab science all those things but at, the, at your heart you're going 
wow, I'm not doing a, a better way to get an erection. We're actually going to save a lot of people's lives like this. Not to diminish the people who work in the drugs <laughs> right, to right, help right. people get an erection, but you know what I mean. Yes. You can only push so much propecia in your lifetime before you want to do something which is going to save a life. If they really believe that's the case, then in some ways you would be negligent to let someone else do it. So, you know, listen, I, I want that drug. I'm getting to that age. Right. I'm super heart healthy, extremely low stroke risk and all those things. But still, whenever I go backpacking, I carry an EpiPen, not because I'm prone to anaphylaxis, but because you never know. And when you're far from medical help, you want those things. And I can intuitively see how valuable this thing would be, not just to get to the point where it's licensed purely for ambulance personnel, but for everyone in America has one. You grabbed it. Our real goal in the end is for people who have already had heart attacks or susceptible to have that in their medicine cabinet. And we want to walk before we run because you just don't want to give it to people. This is how the technology would work in. Nowadays, measuring ECG is easier and easier. So you could see in the next five years, your watch could tell you you're having a heart attack. It unlocks the pen and you could give it. And if you're not, you could try giving it to your, you know, and it won't work. So you don't want people to take it. So that'll evolve. That fits in your world a little more than, well, not your world, but more the Silicon Valley world. And it'll be great. Or you can have these drones deliver it in two seconds with a signal, right? And so that's all fun stuff. But you're right. You hit the nail on the head. That's the ultimate goal. And also giving it to people in India or rural Alaska or, you know, somewhere where they don't get good medical care. And there aren't these, you know, you've got Stanford, you've got Sequoia, you've got all this stuff around you, right? You know, so you hit the nail on the head. Yeah. yeah somehow I think that if I speak to you in two or three years or whenever it is, or a year when you're all of a sudden finished through phase three, and I'm going to go, wait, Rob, you said you weren't going to do phase four. And you go, oh, yes, but just think how much more quickly I can get it into people's medicine cabinets and into the drones. And so <laughs> I have a feeling well, that so you are a missionary. You're a missionary. There you go. Well, so are you. So that's right. That's right. You know, you know how that works, yeah. right? You've got the arrows in your back, right? Absolutely. I don't know whether I got, uh, you explaining this to someone and having them at least say you're not out of your mind helped. But uh, I think it was interesting for people to actually hear us step through this thought process of when do you step away and when do you yep. step in? And I think there's absolutely this thought process that has to go into that, that ultimately the thing that we all have is choices. And these choices are important. Do you have a minute for one more question? Absolutely. Shoot, shoot. So the one thing that worries me is the other piece I told you is we've had a stable group of investors I've been lucky to have through three companies. No surprises. They deliver, I deliver. It's like a mind melt. They've really done more than they can. And no, they, they've done perfectly. But this next phase to get through it, we'd have to bring in a whole new group of investors. And that's my biggest fear. We've got this great cohesive group that's working well. And you, you know how that is when you bring somebody new, you don't really know them. And venture funds, I know a lot of them, I respect them. But again, it's just that dynamic of how to do that without disrupting the team we have, because you know you bring in the wrong investors and the whole thing blows up. And I don't know, maybe that's just a fear I have to deal with and vet it, or I don't know if you have any other comments. I'll just say that, first of all, it's fantastic. You recognize that that is a risk. And 
It's right up there. Listen, the reason that they don't let you jump straight from phase two straight to selling it to the public is there's a chance that something happens in phase three that says you can't sell this to the public. And there's absolutely the same chance that happens that your investors significantly disrupt your process. And you're recognizing that just as the types of things that you need to do in phase two and phase one are different than what you're going to have to do in phase three, the investors for these different phases are different too. You know, listen, in the software business, in the tech business, it's the same thing. When you're at the seed stage, just to pick out simple models, they're very, very resonant to the imagine, if you will, that they're very resonant to the take a chance on me. They're very resonant to have confidence. When you move to your stage A's and B's and C's, it becomes more and more mercenary. And that's the nature of the beast. You're not expecting someone when they're coming in writing very, very large checks at very, very high valuations, meaning they're getting very, very small pieces of the company for this to do anything other than say, I'm giving you this money with the strong expectation that I'm going to get it back times some large multiple. And I'm going to build in all kinds of provisions that give me the opportunity to muck around if I begin to lose confidence that you're actually on that path. And that's a very realistic and very scary thing. So I guess what I say when I hear that is, A, you're entirely correct to fear that. And all I can say is forewarned is forearmed, is that you just have to be very, very careful. You know exactly what it is you're getting. I have no idea who the people are who fund medical trials, so it could be a very, very different set. But I know that a large part of picking the right people is making sure you pick the right people and doing the due diligence that the checks are not identical. And many, many, many times I've accepted offers for funding at lower valuations, at higher dilution, because I wanted to work with the right person. I just actually heard, I was speaking to a founder who actually took money from someone he'd never met. And I was just going, oh my God, that's a terribly scary thing to do. So in other words, be careful. I don't think there's any easy way out. I think when you're raising large amounts of money at higher valuations for different sets of risks at later stage things, they're going to be incented by very, very different motivations than what your early team of investors was motivated by. Good. That was helpful. It's just another risk you have to manage, right? Absolutely right. That's why you're in the chair you're in. That's fun, but a lot of responsibility and really scary sometimes. Well, Rob, listen, thank you for taking the time to walk me through this. Thanks for letting me learn a little bit of what you're doing. And mostly thanks for doing this. Really exciting. No, and thanks for your perspective. Come on. This was great. Like I said, I think you nailed it in terms of helping me just think it through. Right. So thank you very much. Fantastic. Well, I wish you the best luck no matter what you decide. And since I gather you're going to have to decide this in the next what? Probably next year. Yeah. Yeah. So what I want to do then is make sure I schedule a time for you to come back in, do a quick follow-up with me, and let me know what you decided and what the factors in that decision were, and ideally, how it's working out for you. I'll be rooting for you. It's not every episode that I simply tell a guest to go for it. But in today's case, that truly was the logical path. Robert has a good team and a good head on his shoulders, not to mention an exceptional track record. So... Will Robert enlist the help of a big company, or will he continue to hold the reins? I'm fascinated by the potential of this device, and I look forward to checking in with him down the road to see where he ended up. In the meantime, if you want to be a guest on That Will Never Work, I've made it really easy. Just go to markrandolph.com forward slash guest, fill out the form, and leave a voice message right there on the site. 
While you're there, sign up to get my weekly entrepreneurial advice delivered right to your inbox. Or connect with me on Twitter at mbrandolph or on Instagram at thatwillneverwork. Or my newest attempt at denying my age on TikTok, where I promise you won't ever find me dancing without a shirt on. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to smash that like button and leave me a review at Apple Podcasts. I'll see you next time. Audiation.